You know, if you've been hanging around Oceanside for any period of time, you know uh, how much how, how much a big deal small groups are for us. And we have a number of different kinds of small groups in our church. Great way to get to know people, much different than just saying hi on a Sunday morning to kind of connect in a much deeper way. But Dean and I have had a chance to be part of a very unique small group this last year called Freedom Session. And I don't know if you've ever remember the first time a small group gets together in the fall, everybody's happy and they want to put their best foot forward. And by the way, the treats are the best the first night. That's always the rule in small groups, right? We went to the, our first night of Freedom Session with our leader, Doug, in September. And he said, uh, welcome to Freedom Session. We're going to look at step one tonight. We've admitted that in our own strength, we are powerless to rise above our hurts, resentments, and unhealthy behaviors and attempts to control. Our lives have become unmanageable. I was like, OK, this is going to be different, right? <laughs> Freedom Session is an amazing program for people who want to face the issues in their life and get free like these chains we talked about, have them released. Uh, and it's been an amazing time. It's been uh, really joyful and very painful uh, to look honestly at what is taking place in our life. Um, but I love that this honesty always brings freedom and always brings peace in God. Uh, I love that our church was founded on that 25 years ago, that it's more important to be real than it is to look together. I was saved in uh, churches in the 1970s, and I, back in those days, we used to dress up in the churches I was part of, and you'd, you'd put a tie on Sunday morning, and, you know, the women would wear their best dresses, and I get that. I mean, I think it was an honoring thing. We were trying to honor God. It was worship, but it had the unintended byproduct of making everybody look more together than they really were, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so there's a culture that can develop in a church that's kind of like, never let them see a sweat. It's kind of like, you know, uh, you know a, group, a group togetherness of our very best photos from the week or whatever you want to say on social media is. And, and what I find is that there's really a strength and a power in reality and being honest with God. I love that about God. We're in a series, as was mentioned in Luke 7 and 8, uh, you give a guy like me two chapters and I could preach till three or four this afternoon. I won't do that, okay? We're all just picking some kind of a little piece of it. But today I want to look at uh, the end of Luke chapter 7, um, that, last little, that last little piece. And uh, we'll dive into that. Before we do that, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of opening your word together this morning, Lord. Thank you for the life that it brings, the power that it brings by you, Holy Spirit. Lord, we open up our hearts tenderize, touch, heal, anoint what needs to be done this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So some context in Luke chapter 7 toward the end. Um, it's towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry, though it's probably around 30 years of age. It's in uh, Copernicum, so up in sort of the north area. Um, and there's some first century cultural things that would be good to know about even before you read the scripture. I don't know if you've ever found but sometimes you've been reading the Bible and things just like, what is that about? This is a 2,000-year-old text, the New Testament part or more, um, and it's hard to understand sometimes, but here's a few things that will help us understand kind of some cultural norms to be aware of that were in place when this event took place. We had the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were very kind of professional religious people, they, they spent their lives doing everything right before God. One writer said the Pharisees were separatists organized to preserve the holiness tenets of Judaism. So everybody kind of looked up to the Pharisees like, if we could really, really be good Jews, 
we would be Pharisees. Then there were rabbis, and the rabbis of the day, it's important to know, they would never even talk to a woman in public if they could help it. So there was never any open contact between a rabbi and a woman in public. Uh, there was welcoming traditions when someone came into your house. It was just very common to, to give them a kiss, kind of that little left cheek, right cheek peck thing, right? Uh, to put oil on their head, it was a way of welcoming them. To provide water for their feet, it was a dusty context. Everybody wore sandals and their feet were always dirty. It was just a very normal, gracious thing when someone came to your house to do those kinds of things. In banquets, when uh, banquets took place, they were open to the public. The wealthy people would put on a banquet and they would have kind of a, a center area. But it, because it was a warm climate, those areas were very open and the public were allowed to come in and watch and overhear the conversations and have some of the leftovers afterwards. So it wouldn't be uncommon to have a very expensive banquet with very um, notable people, but to have some local people around the outside. They would recline at the table. They didn't have seats like we had. They'd kind of lay down and their feet would be out toward the back of them and their heads toward the table. So some of those things kind of help us understand a little bit of the context, which is, is foreign to us now. But in the middle of that, we want to read, start reading in Luke 36. Now I'll read initially here 36 to 38. Now one of the Pharisees asked him, this is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So... Simon, the Pharisee, he's got this thing all set up. He wants to kind of have a look at Jesus, invites Jesus. We'll see later in the story, he obviously was keeping Jesus at an arm's length. He did not provide some of the normal things. He was pretty standoffish with Jesus and probably a lot of his buddies that were there. I don't think Simon had Jesus over for supper like, oh man, this is the Messiah. I want to get to know him and hear what he has to say. I think it was kind of like, let's check this dude out and see where we can trip him up. That's kind of the vibe that I'm getting from this invitation from Simon. But Jesus... He loves it. I mean, he just comes and shows up with the guy, you know, and spends time with him. But his polite little party, the little plans that he had to have this neat, orderly, religious event got hijacked by this lady that comes in. And you can imagine how uncomfortable this would have been for this religious crowd who was very together. Their whole life was to be separate. They knew who this lady was. Everybody knew who she was. And she starts weeping and crying and anointing, and it just goes on and on and on. It just wasn't like a little two-minute thing, and then she left. She just continues to do this. And you can see the tension building, and Simon's trying to, you know, coordinate this and keep it all on the level, right? And this, this has just gone off the rails. So we see this very, very strange situation in this context that this, this banquet that was supposed to be one thing and ended up turning out to be something very, very different. Let's look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so this is in his heart, like thinking in his mind, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. His nose up in the air, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered to him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. It's interesting to see this spiritual gift of a word of knowledge in place. 
seems very clear that Jesus evidenced all the spiritual gifts even before they were given. He was a precursor to show how they worked because he was in touch with his Father and he was walking with the Holy Spirit and was baptized in the Holy Spirit. You see all of these spiritual gifts coming out in Jesus' life. And this, this word of wisdom, he knew what Simon was thinking in the midst of this context and he calls him out on that. Uh, interesting to get kind of Simon's disdain. You're starting to pick up some of the vibe. You know, when he addressed Simon, say it, teacher. Kind of like, Okay, prove it. What do you got, you know? So there's this antagonistic relationship between Simon and kind of this arm's length that he's holding Jesus. So Jesus tells him a story. Starting in verse 41, he says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Denarii is a day's wage for uh, a laborer. So what, I'm not very good at math. You know, what's that, you know, a couple of months pay versus multiple years of pay, Right? So one owned 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. He's still kind of being political, right? Well, I suppose. He could tell it was going somewhere, right? The one who canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, there was no misunderstanding who she was, Jesus knew who she was, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. So he says to Simon, he tells him this story and says, do you see this woman? That seems like a really obvious kind of thing. The whole room is aghast at what's taking place here. It's like, obviously he sees this woman. But I think what Jesus was getting at was, have you really seen her? Like, you, you know, you're all stressed out about what's taking place, but have you seen who this woman is? Do you see what's going on inside this woman's heart? Have you even seen her at all? Or is she just an object? Is she just a, like a cartoon caricature? When I was a kid, you used to be able to go to a, a fair and like for 10 bucks, this guy would make a caricature of you. So, you know, riding your motorcycle with your ears in the wind or, you know, playing your guitar in some goofy way, right? It was a caricature. You could recognize it was you, but it was just really kind of comical, right? It was over the top. I think that when Simon looked at this woman, that's what he saw. He saw a caricature. This is like the, the thing that he could point to, the person he could point to to say, that's really bad and then point to himself and say, this is really good, right? So he just sees this caricature of this woman, but Jesus says, do you see this woman? I think he had missed her altogether. Simon made the mistake of thinking that the kind of this woman's sins and the amount of this woman's sins made her worse off than he was before God. He made a critical error. He said, these sins that you do, they're horrible sins. I don't do those horrible sins. And you got a lot of them, and I don't do many. So he's making this comparison in his mind between this woman and himself. He didn't understand the principle that James wrote 20 or 30 years later in James 2.10, when James said, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of it all. See, Simon was a professional non-sinner. 
And yet he was still a sinner, if he was honest, if he chose to be honest. He didn't realize that her sins, plural, were just as deadly as his sin, if it was only one. They were both equally guilty before the scriptures and before the law. So he's making this mistake of thinking this, this about this woman that he's not really seeing. And Simon was mocking this woman for looking foolish in the presence of Jesus. You know, he said, I can just see the disdain. I can just hear the clicking sounds in his, oh, 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 and all his friends are going, oh, oh, this is just wrong. Oh, oh. you know, everybody's got their knickers in a knot about what's taking place in this situation, right? But he made, he makes this thing, want to make this woman look foolish in the presence of Jesus to highlight what's wrong with her life. But all the time it was he and his guests who were really the foolish ones. Because they said they were waiting for the Messiah. They spent their lives searching for the scriptures for the Messiah to come to save his people. And here he was sitting at the table with them, and they didn't even realize it. She realized it to the point of weeping and crying and kissing and, you know, and just lowering herself. She knew who Jesus was, but the experts had missed who Jesus was. So who was the one who was looking foolish? I think it's Simon and all his buddies. And Jesus says something very interesting after he kind of brings the hammer down of the story to Simon. He says, um, Therefore I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven, uh, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, who is he thinking about when he talks about that? That's Simon. He forgives little, has forgiven little, loves little. Jesus wasn't teaching that only a great sinner can become a great lover. He wasn't saying because of all these women's sins, she is a great lover. I think that's not the, the point of the story. You know, I, a lot of times in church, I've heard people with radical testimonies. Clavel's testimony and BJ's testimony, watch it this next week. I was in tears watching it this last week. They have a radical testimony, okay? And I, I got saved in junior high, you know, and I came from a moral family and, you know, kind of a loving family, and I never, you know, did a, a lot of stuff, you know, because I was saved young, and I'm grateful for that, but I don't have a testimony that's like, you know, I spent 10 years in the penitentiary and murdered, you know, I, I don't have all that stuff in my life, and I always, to be honest, kind of felt gypped, like, you know, when somebody would give one of these juicy testimonies, like, oh, man, that, that's a Christian, that's a real Christian, now, me, I just kind of fell into the deal, you know, had a lucky, lucky break. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not making the point to say the reason she loves so much is because she's been forgiven so much. I think the point was this. To love much, we must be in touch with how amazing God's forgiveness is for us. See, as I thought about this story, I don't think this is the first time this woman saw Jesus. We don't know this from Scripture, but he'd been preaching in the markets and all over the town. It was a big buzz. It's very likely this woman had already heard him preach and probably had already given her life to him. I think that she had probably already received Christ and the forgiveness of Christ, but she, she wants to come and honor Jesus and worship Jesus in this, this very extravagant way. But she, was, she understood how great her forgiveness was, the weight of her life and a life of bad choices and wrong turns and, you know, and bad men and all the stuff that she'd been involved in, that weight was lifted when she was forgiven and received the message of Jesus Christ and what he offered in the, in the good news of the kingdom of God. So it's not so much about, you know, how much sin we've been forgiven for, but are we in touch with the amazing reality of the forgiveness at all. 
You know, if I think about my life and, and my, my fairly, you know, milquetoast life in terms of being a bad guy, I would be tempted to think that, you know, somebody else needs Jesus more than I needed Jesus. But that's a misunderstanding of the Scripture. One sin, the Scripture says, makes us just as guilty as the worst axe murderer or whatever you want. You fill in the blank, you know, tax collector or whatever, prostitute. It's the same thing. So it's not so much about the, the, the number of my sins and the nature of my sins, but it's the fact that I'm a sinner anyway. Because if my little white milk toast life wasn't that bad, why did Jesus have to go to the cross for me? Think that one through a little bit. When you start to think like, well, it's not really that bad. It kind of balances out on the scale. No, God sent his very son. It was mentioned today in the rap. He sent his very son, the hardest thing he did, to die on a cross. Why such a big deal if my little sins weren't such a big deal? They're a big deal. They're the same big deal as a, as a notorious sinner. It's all the same. And I think what Jesus is teaching is, look, it's not so much about the amount of your sins. It's the fact that you're grateful, the gratefulness for your forgiveness that brings the love. It's being in touch with the reality of how wonderful forgiveness is that makes the love blossom and overthrow, overflow in your life, which is what this woman was experiencing. And it was not what Simon was experiencing. Let's finish up the story, 748 to 50. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table, this is all his buddies, probably a whole bunch of other Pharisees, right? Those who were at the table began to say to him among themselves, who is this? Even he even forgives sins. This just goes from crazy to crazier. Verse 50, and he says to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. <laughs> I just love this about Jesus. I love this about Jesus. This shows the true nature of the guests. They should be celebrating. This should be a party. Here's this notorious lady whose life has been ruined by sin and wrecked by the weight of sin. She's now freed. She's a child of God. She's overjoyed and worshiping Jesus. They should be going, yay, God. And they're going, wait a minute. Yeah, you, that means you're God. No, they're, they're connecting the dots to what Jesus is saying. They're missing the whole event because of their blindness. And yet Jesus looks directly at the woman. In the midst of all the stuff that's happening, don't forget, these were the guys that were going to kill him eventually, you know, this crew. He looks at the woman directly and he addresses her. She's not exhibit A in some religious debate. She's not, you know, this thing that, that they prayed in front of like the woman caught in adultery, you know. She's a person. She's a daughter of the king. And Jesus looks directly at her and says, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine the joy in her life and the freedom and how she would have felt as she left that room that day? She's the only one, actually, who goes away forgiven and living in peace. Not Simon, not his religious buddies. They're just as bound up in their bitterness and their, in their darkness. They don't go away forgiven. They, don't, they definitely don't go away with peace. They're all turmoiled and troubled about what they think is going wrong here. This woman, she goes away forgiven, and she goes away in peace because of her interaction with Jesus. I just love this about Jesus, that he sees us as individuals. When I think about this story, there's, I think, four things that are kind of take-homes for me. I've been 
marinating in this story for weeks here and thinking about this story, and it's been very, it's really touched my own heart personally. And uh, a couple things I see that are kind of the so what or the take homes out of this passage. The first thing is this: is that Jesus sees the heart. I love this about Jesus, and it makes me nervous sometimes. <laughs> he sees the heart. He sees our heart. You know, Simon made two prejudgments in this situation. He was looking at the external. He was looking at the outside only. The first thing he misjudged was Jesus by expecting Jesus to condemn the woman instead of forgiving the woman. That's the first mistake he made. Did he figure Jesus was going to, you know, pull the trigger at this woman? It's the opposite of that. He forgives this woman. There's a tenderness for Jesus for this broken woman and he forgives her. The second thing he misjudged, he misjudged the woman. I think he probably even misjudged her motives, you know? To be honest, not to be too crass, but I think it could have been to this crowd of religious guys who were kind of out of touch with everything. I think they might have thought she was coming on to Jesus or making a pass at Jesus or trying to, you know, you fill in the blank there. I mean, it's that weird. You know, that they were probably thinking, they misjudged who she was and her motives, and they misjudged her state. They saw this hopelessly person stuck in their sin, no chance of redemption, bottom of the food chain, don't you dare come out during the noon time when the other women are around, that kind of person. They had misjudged this person. They did not see a person who was broken, but who was forgiven and who was getting free of all of that stuff in her life. He misjudged her in so many ways because he looked on the outside, but Jesus looks on the heart. I hope that encourages you. If you're one of those people that, you know, people look at you and they see one thing and there's kind of this character they see of you, Jesus, doesn't, Jesus is not that way. He sees your heart. He looks into your heart. Regardless of what looks like on the outside, he sees the heart and he sees us from the inside out. The second thing that I love about this story is that there's no one who's too far gone. There's no one who's too far gone. Um, People, sometimes I'll run into some people and say, if you knew what I had done, you would know there's no hope for me. No, I know what was done at the cross, therefore I know there's hope for you, regardless of what you've done. No one is too far gone. You see, to the sinners, this lady was an embarrassment. To the religious guys, the, the guys who were professional not sinners, to have her show up and crash their party and ruin their little thing, she was an embarrassment to, the, to those guys. She was an embarrassment to the, to the group that was there. And yet Jesus was not embarrassed by her. So if you're in a room filled with people who appear to have it all together, I want you to know today Jesus is not embarrassed by you. You might even be here and look around and see all these beautiful people and think, I don't belong here. Well, let me tell you, as someone who's been around for 15 or 18 years, I know a lot of you, their lives aren't that together, and mine is not that together, so relax, okay? All right, we're all in this together. But, but you can feel like, I don't belong here. I'm an embarrassment in this place. Jesus is not embarrassed with you. When the enemy, enemy torments you and he reminds you of your many sins, you take a step toward God and he starts to natter in your ear about all this stuff you've done, I want you to know that Jesus is not embarrassed by you. When you're afraid to turn and face the truth, and start to deal with some stuff in your life, and you start to bring those things that have been hidden in the darkness into the light, I want you to know Jesus is not embarrassed with you. He embraces that. That's what he's been waiting for in your life. When your old friends mock you because you've, you've had a radical life change because you don't want to go out and do the things that they, you used to do with them, 
and, they're, and, and you're embarrassed and they're embarrassed, you know what? Jesus is not embarrassed with you. Because he's about bringing change and about bringing wholeness and about bringing freedom from the things which we used to think were so great but now have actually chained us and enslaved us. Jesus is not embarrassed by you. Paul understood this. He calls himself the chief sinner, ironic, because he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. 20 years later in 2 Corinthians or 30 years later in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul said, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. What does he mean by that? We don't look on the outside anymore. We used to. I used to be a professional outside looker. We don't regard anyone to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old's passed away and the new has come. <laughs> That's the reality of the gospel of Jesus. That's the reality of the life change that comes from being honest with Jesus. You're never too far gone. The third thing that I see about this, and I just love this, is that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Not just the notorious sinners, we, we celebrate that and love that about him, but he did go to the party that Simon invited him. I mean, think about that. He knew this was a setup. He knew they were out to trip him up. Later on, all they want to do is kill him. They're just looking for a chance. And yet Jesus chooses to be with these guys to just... Be real and be God before them. And I know that Jesus' heart would have been to see them break free. Not very many of them did. A couple, maybe, we know from the Gospels, broke out of that and were saved, Paul later on. Uh, but Jesus was there for them as well. He came to seek and save what was lost. He didn't come to spend time with the together people. He said in the other places in Scripture, the doctor is here for the sick folks, not for the well folks. And Jesus is the ultimate doctor, our spiritual doctor, and he loves to spend time with sick people. We get it wrong when we think the church is kind of a country club or, or like Lions Club and it's kind of a spiritual, you know, Kiwanis Club or whatever. We don't understand the church. The church is not meant to be that. The church is much more like a bloody ER overrun with accident victims and understaffed and COVIDed out and people having trouble breathing and uh, blood everywhere. That's really what the church should be and what the church really is in reality. It's a hospital, not a, not a, not a club. Um, because Jesus came to seek and save what was lost. Verse 48, he just says to her, your sins are forgiven. Have you ever heard Jesus say that to you? This is what he wants to do. This is why he's come. Even today, you just admit those things to Jesus and receive that forgiveness that comes from Jesus. If you don't have a personal relationship with him, just be honest with him. Say you've messed it up, but give your life to him. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. Come and be my savior. And, and be ready for that experience of Jesus seeing you and saying your sins are forgiven. There's nothing like that. I remember that. When I was even a junior high boy, I remember that weight taken off me when I, I realized my sins are forgiven in Jesus. Uh, he came to seek and save the lost. But the last part of this passage, which I've been really, really, to be honest, struggling with you for a couple of weeks is this. It's easier than you think to become a modern-day Pharisee. What do I mean by that? When I think about this story as I've been reading it over and over and praying through it, who do I identify with? I wish I could say I identify my life with a woman, but if I was to be honest, I really probably identify more with a Pharisee than I do with a woman. 
Because, I mean, I was saved, I don't know, 55 years ago or something, you know? And after many decades of walking with Christ, your sin clock slows down, if you want to say that, or it should. Like, you know, the old corny joke about every time you sin, the hand goes around, or whatever on the clock, you know that lame old joke, I'll save you. But, you know, we, we, I think if you could imagine your sins as a sin clock, when we're first saved, you know, where the sin clock's going, whoa, because we're just getting all this stuff we're trying to come out of in our life. And yeah, we're saved and we're redeemed and we're a child of God, but we still have a lot of bad habits from, you know, the day before yesterday, right? But over time, the point is, as we walk with God, that sin clock is supposed to slow down because that's God's work in our lives. That's what the scripture calls sanctification. God's making us to be more like his son. He doesn't just want to save us. He wants to save us from the stupidity and the penalty of our sins, okay? So the idea is that that clock should be slowing down over time. The trick is it's easy to forget after those decades and decades and decades, and as your sin clock slows down, it's easy to forget that you still need forgiveness. And that's why I think I struggled so much with this story this week as I thought about who do I identify with, you know? Who in the store do I identify with? And, and, I, and I realized that, yeah, maybe my sin clock has slowed down over 50 years, but I still sin, and the penalty for that sin is still needed in Jesus, and his blood still applies to that sin that I did, even though I, maybe it was a little sin, which is such a lame theological concept. Please don't ever say that, or, you know, it's just, it's just a little white lie. There's lies and there's not lies, so forget the gray lies, all right? We need the forgiveness of Jesus. And I just think it's easy as a person who's walked with God, and maybe some of you can relate to this. You, you get out of touch. You forget those days before you were, uh, before you were saved. Um, and sometimes I think our love can grow cold if we've lost touch with the reality of how amazing it is that we've been forgiven. And I have to admit, you know, my love has probably grown colder, particularly in the last two years, because it's been so weird with isolation and all the stuff that I'd gone through. And I, and I realized, you know, I think my love has grown cold. Um, but the great thing is God calls me back, and he calls us back to get connected again with him just through thinking through and being grateful for, for what he's done. <laughs> as I began to worship and as I began to think through the magnitude of my sin, even though it wasn't horrific, it was still sin, there's a love that breaks into my life. I invite the worship team to come up. We're going to give some time to let this marinate team come up if you would right now. But, but I just want to leave us with this, that has your love grown cold? Um, you know what? Jesus is just as close as the person sitting next to you. And all you have to do, I've found many times in that situation, is just begin to think through about how amazing your salvation is. Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God, came and took your place on the cross. He traded all your crud and all your sin and all your rebellion for all his righteousness and all his perfection. He made a swap that didn't cost you anything and it cost him everything. <laughs> when I start to think like that and I start to worship God and I start to renew worship in my life, guess what comes out of that? Guess what rises out of that? Love comes back out and the love comes back in my life and I've seen it in the last week as I've been thinking about this scripture I begin to start to love again people and when I see a notorious sinner my first response is not oh, oh no no you shouldn't do that my first response is Lord thank you so much that you saved me from that 
I just want this person to know how great it is to be free from that. It changes your whole perspective on the, the we-they thing. We're all in need of a Savior. And that love comes back when we get in touch with that forgiveness. So I invite you to stand, if you would. We're just going to worship a little bit. And if, if that makes sense to you, that maybe there has been some growing cold of your love, just be honest with God. You don't have to pretend with God. Remember what I said? He sees the heart. He sees what's inside. So, Lord, we thank you that you are the God of forgiveness. And just as quickly as we come to you and are honest and are real and say, I'm sorry, God. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. Your blood flows right back over us and brings the freedom and the healing that comes from that. So, Lord, I just pray you'd give us just a few moments before we go, even now, to experience that overflow of your love, that revelation of the fact of who you are and what you've done for us. Come, Lord.